Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Well, in every battle and in every contest, there are winners and there are losers. And significant winners and losers of major battles and contests are often long remembered in history. For example, you can think of the defeat of the Spanish Armada, that great fleet of ships who was defeated in 1588 by English forces. Or you could think of a great victory, major victory, by General George Washington in the year 1781 uh, over General Cornwallis, uh, who surrendered at the Battle of Yorktown. It wasn't here, it was a different Yorktown. Uh, but General George Washington's victory effectively determined the outcome of the American Revolutionary War. Or you could think about the year 1815, when Napoleon surrendered to forces led by the Duke of Wellington at the Battle of Waterloo, which changed the course of world history as well. And maybe you're not super familiar with those kinds of wins and losses. You might be more familiar with the victory of the 1980 United States men's hockey team, uh, frequently referred to as the miracle on ice when they defeated the Soviet Union on their way to winning the gold medal in that year in 1980. Or you might think of Buster Douglas, who defeated an undefeated Mike Tyson in the year 1990 and perhaps one of the biggest upsets in boxing history. But long before any of those battles and contests, the Bible tells us about a significant contest that happened on Mount Carmel. And it was a contest between the Lord God of Israel and Baal, who was a false god to whom the people of Israel had turned under the leadership of the king of Israel, King Ahab at the time, and his wife Jezebel. And so as we continue our series on the triumph of God in the ministry of Elijah the prophet, we've already considered previously uh, in this contest that it consisted of 450 prophets of Baal against the one prophet of the Lord, Elijah, each calling upon the name of their God. And the God who answered by sending fire from heaven would be revealed as the true God and would win the contest. And Israel is given a front row seat to this contest. And several weeks ago, we learned that Baal fails. They all witnessed Baal fail. They called out to Baal, and Baal sent no fire from heaven. And so now it's Elijah's turn. And the God of Israel must yet prove victorious because even though it's clear now that Baal is not God, is there any God? Will there be any answer from heaven? Will there be any fire sent? Or, in the end, do we live in a godless universe and a godless world? Well, we learn in 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 30 through 40, that the true God triumphs on Mount Carmel by sending fire from heaven. The true God triumphs on Mount Carmel by sending fire from heaven. So let's consider 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 30 through 40, as we think about the victory on Mount Carmel. So if you have your Bibles this morning, you can turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you should be able to find a paperback Bible underneath one of the seats in front of you. And our text can be found on page 171 of those Bibles. But again, we're going to be looking at 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 30 through 40 this morning. And so I invite you, if you're able, to stand now for the reading of God's word. So this is after the silence of Baal. He does not answer the cries of the prophets of Baal. And then we read, but then Elijah said to all the people, 
come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the 12 stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order, and he cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abides forever. You can be seated. Well, this text that we've just heard recounts God's victory on Mount Carmel in three acts. The first act, act one, is the preliminary setup. And we see this in verses 30 through 32 and again in verses 36 and 37. We read in verse 30 at the outset that the first thing that Elijah does is he calls the people to come near to him, to gather around him, and he begins to rebuild the altar of the Lord. Now, in this rebuilding of the altar, we see once again in this contest on Mount Carmel that the primary issue being dealt with is not a lack of rain, even though this contest is happening in the context of a drought that has endured for longer than three years the primary issue being dealt with on mount carmel is not about the lack of rain what this rebuilding of the altar reminds us of is that the primary issue being dealt with in this contest on mount carmel has to do with worship an altar is where worship takes place and actually elijah confronted the people with this very issue way back at the beginning when this contest began earlier in this chapter in verse 21 elijah confronts the people initially with this question how long will you go limping between two different opinions if the lord is god follow him in other words if he's the lord give worship to him and if it's baal then worship him And so the question that has to be answered through this contest on Mount Carmel is this. Who will receive worship in Israel? Who will be worshipped in Israel? Is it going to be Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, or will it be Baal? It cannot be both. And this rebuilding of the altar emphasizes the centrality of right worship. The centrality of right worship because worship is more important than rain. Worship is more important than rain in 1 Kings chapter 18. And the reason it's more important is because God is more ultimate than any of the blessings that he bestows upon us. 
God is more ultimate than any of the other blessings he bestows upon us because the greatest blessing that God offers us in relationship and in fellowship with him is himself. The greatest blessing that God holds out to us doesn't consist of things that he might bestow upon us. It's himself. And the truth is that we cannot reject God himself for long and continue to receive and enjoy the blessings that come from him. We can't do that individually. We can't do that corporately. We cannot reject God himself and continue to enjoy his blessings indefinitely. And let's make this clear. Israel has not just neglected the worship of God. They have rejected him in favor of Baal. And the reason we know that is because the language that we read here in 1 Kings is that the altar to the Lord had been thrown down. The reason this altar needs to be rebuilt is not because it had been neglected and is now in disarray because of a lack of use. The reason that this altar needs to be rebuilt is because it had been destroyed. It had been thrown down. In fact, it's this rejection of God as their God which has led the Israelites to experience this drought in the first place. The dry, cracked, broken ground that surrounds them in Israel is caused by this broken altar. The broken altar has led to the cracked ground. It's a rejection of God that has led to this drought. But even behind the broken altar, there's something deeper. The broken altar is a reflection of a broken covenant. The people were bound to the Lord as their God to render to him worship and to render that worship to him alone. And yet they had divided hearts. They were limping between two different opinions, worshiping Baal and breaking covenant. And that broken covenant is a reflection of, of something even deeper still. A fractured, broken, divided heart. Broken, fractured, divided hearts lead to a broken covenant, which leads to a broken altar of worship, which leads to the cracked ground that Israel finds around them. And yet, in his grace, God is concerned to deal with the fracture in the hearts of the people. And he's concerned to deal not, with, not just with the fracture that exists between his relationship with the people, but the relationship among the people themselves. Remember that Elijah is ministering at a time of the divided kingdom with Israel in the north and Judah in the south. It's a divided kingdom. And yet we read in verse 31 that as Elijah begins to repair the altar, he does so using 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob. So even though there's a divided kingdom at the time of Elijah, Elijah regards them, as does the Lord he serves regard them, as yet one covenant people. He uses 12 stones to represent the unity of Israel, the covenant people of God, because the unity of the people is something that deeply concerns our God. And that's true in the Old Testament, but it's also true today. The unity among the covenant people is something that he's deeply concerned with. And that's important for us to be reminded of. It's important for us to be reminded that Jesus in his high priestly prayer just before he goes to the cross, he's praying that the church would be one, that the covenant people in the church would be one, would be united. That's a concern of his heart. It's important for us to be reminded today because of how much division is around us. The church itself is dividing into these kinds of tribes based on political partisanship, vaccination requirements, mask mandates. That's impacted the church, not just abstractly, that's impacted us as a church. Division is threatening our churches. And we need to be mindful of how important unity is to God so that we can act 
for unity rather than division, that we can act with love and with grace and with charity and with truth. And truth is important, right? We're not to be united in error. We are to be united in the truth, agreement in essentials, but to recognize that there are non-essentials that leave room for disagreement and to act toward those who disagree with charity and love and grace, to do things that promote unity rather than promote division. Division is not only threatening our churches, it's threatening our presbytery, the Central Indiana Presbytery. Some of you may know some of the details related to this, but division is threatening our presbytery. Pray for our presbytery. And division is threatening our nation as a whole. Pray for our nation. Abraham Lincoln was quoting the words of Jesus when he said during the Civil War that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Those should be sobering words coming from Jesus. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. So pray for our churches. Pray for our presbytery. Pray for our nation. In fact, that leads to a second aspect of the preliminary setup, and that's prayer. That's what we see Elijah doing in verses 36 and 37. Elijah prays, but unlike the prophets of Baal, who created this spectacle of shouting out with loud voices and dancing around the altar they had made and cutting themselves so the blood is flowing forth. We saw that in the previous verses about six weeks ago. Elijah doesn't do any of that. Elijah confidently prays to his God because Elijah knows that his God is there and he knows that his God hears and is attentive to his prayer. So with confidence, he prays in verses 36 and 37, and he asks for these things. He asks that the Lord would reveal himself as the true God. He asks that the Lord would vindicate him as his prophet, and he asks that the people would confess and acknowledge the Lord as the true God as he turns their hearts back to him. That's his prayer. But notice the graciousness in all of this that's happening. Notice the grace that's transpiring on Mount Carmel. Because God is taking the initiative here. God is pursuing his people. God is reclaiming the hearts of the people. They're not rebuilding this altar. They're not pursuing the Lord. Even after they've witnessed with clarity, Baal bombs. Baal is not the Lord. And yet they're still divided between two opinions. They're not yet confessing and acknowledging the Lord God as the true God. It's God who is in pursuit here. And so for all of their sin, all of their idolatry, all of their false worship, all of their unfaithfulness to the covenant that they have committed, there is still a way back to the Lord. There is still access to fellowship and communion with him, but only by act, only by grace, only by a mighty act of grace that will be displayed through act two, atoning sacrifice. We see this in verses 32 through 35, and again in verses 38 and 39. In verses 32 and 35, we see this preparation of the sacrifice. And so these verses could actually be included as part of the preliminary setup. If we wanted to be technical, we're going to cover it here. We read in those verses that Elijah makes this trench around the altar. Uh, it's deep enough to contain two seas of seed. Then he puts the wood in order, cuts the bowl into pieces, lays it on the wood. And then he says, fill four jars with water and pour it on top of everything. And he says, do it again. He says, do it again. Three times they pour all this water out. And so everything is soaked. 
Now, some have understandably wondered at this point, since they're in the midst of a three and a half year drought, where all this water came from. It's a reasonable question, and the likely answer to that is it came from the nearby Mediterranean Sea, which would not have been used as drinking water, and so they're not pouring out something that would have been essential to life. And so they likely accessed this through the Mediterranean Sea, that which, which had not been dried up from the drought. But the more important question isn't where did the water come from. The more important question is why is Elijah doing this? Why does he soak this slaughtered animal and the wood and the altar four time, three times with so much water that it soaks everything and fills up the trench that he had dug? Why does he do this? He does it to magnify the Lord. Because remember, there's one stipulation in this contest for the prophets of Baal and Elijah. They cannot light the fire to the altar. That fire must come from the true God. And if anyone's going to light this fire now at the altar, it's going to have to be from the power of the one true God because it's soaked. If any fire is going to be generated, it's going to have to come from God. And he does this to magnify the power of the God that he serves. And then God's answer comes in verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. There you have it. The triumph of God in the ministry of Elijah the prophet. An undisputable and complete victory for the Lord. Here it is. The Lord is the one who answers by sending fire from heaven and he wins the contest. Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, is the true God. But remember that this contest on Mount Carmel is not just about the victory of the Lord over Baal. It's about the victory of the Lord over Baal for the hearts of his people to turn their hearts back. So not only do we read here about an answer from the Lord, we also read about the answer from the people in verse 39. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. This is what Elijah and the Lord God have been ultimately after this entire time. To reclaim the hearts of a wayward people and to draw this confession of faith from their mouths by this extraordinary display of power and this act of God's grace. Well, display of power to be sure, but how is the victory on Mount Carmel an act of grace? How is this an act of grace? Well, remember that this contest is taking place in the midst of a drought. And we said way back when we were considering the beginning of this contest several weeks ago that it would have been logical in the midst of a three-year drought that the winner of this contest would be determined by sending rain. That would be the obvious winner of the contest. Which God will send rain, Yahweh or Baal? But that's not the term of the contest. It's not how the winner is going to be determined. It's by fire. Why? Why fire from heaven? Well, here's the reason. It's because before blessings can be rained down and enjoyed by an idolatrous and unfaithful people, their sin must be dealt with. That's why. Before blessings can be rained down and enjoyed by an idolatrous and unfaithful people, that sin has to be dealt with. And so don't miss this. Remember that fire is often used in Scripture to indicate divine wrath. 
and idolatrous, unfaithful people are deserving objects of that wrath. And so according to strict justice, the fire that came down from the Lord should have consumed the sinful people. That fire should have consumed the sinful people, according to strict justice. And though fire does fall, wrath does come down, it bypasses the people, and it goes to the altar where the sacrifice is. Wrath consumes the sacrifice instead of consuming the people. And so note this. The fire of God's wrath falls on a substitute. And as it does, his wrath is turned away from sinful people so that they can be forgiven, restored, and reconciled to him. Let's take a second to read that again. The fire of God's wrath falls on a substitute, and as it does, his wrath is turned away from sinful people, and they are reconciled and restored to him. Notice we're not just talking about Mount Carmel anymore. We're talking about Calvary. We're talking about Calvary because that's where God provided a substitute, and that substitute was his own son, Jesus. And Jesus took upon himself the wrath of God against sin when he was nailed to a cross. And he was forsaken there on that cross. The father turned his face away from the son as that wrath was poured out upon him. And as he turned his face away from his son, he could then turn his face toward us in grace and forgive us for what our sins deserve by this act of his grace. He could forgive us through an atoning sacrifice and we could be reclaimed and be restored and reconciled to him by confessing his name in faith. That's what's happening here. And this is an act of grace. It's not just a display of power. This is an act of grace whereby God in his grace extends life-giving blessing again to a sinful people through a substitutionary sacrifice. So Mount Carmel not only testifies that God is the true God, it also testifies that he's truly gracious, accepting an atoning sacrifice in our place in order to provide a way back to him. And he does it through atoning sacrifice. And this atoning sacrifice is pointing forward to Jesus as our atoning sacrifice and to Jesus as the way back to communion with the Lord. But not everyone on Mount Carmel reacts the same way to this display of power and act of his grace. Not everyone is confessing the name of Yahweh. And so not only do we see grace on Mount Carmel, we also see act three, culminating slaughter in verse 40. We read in verse 40, Elijah says to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon, and slaughtered them there. If you're wondering why I'm using the word slaughter in my point, it's because that's the word the scripture uses. A culminating slaughter. But you might be thinking, are you serious? Really? Why does this exhilarating episode of God's triumph have to end with this kind of violent bloodshed? Why does a high point of grace have to be marred by this kind of severe judgment. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that's in the Bible that causes somebody to read it and say, this is what I can't take. This is what I can't stomach. This is why I reject it. This brutality and violence and bloodshed. I can't take it. 
And so they turn away from it. Why is Elijah doing this? Well, in a strict sense, Elijah's carrying out the law. As we read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 13, which stipulates very clearly that anyone who's guilty of enticing God's people to leave the Lord and to worship false gods is to be put to death. And that would certainly include the prophets of Baal enticing the people to go away from the true God and worship idols. Now, of course, that answer is not really going to satisfy anybody who finds this kind of stuff repugnant in the scriptures. Just pointing to the law is not going to answer that question. But, you know, here's, here's the real issue. The real problem here is not the Bible's insistence on judgment. The real problem is our tendency to not think that idolatry is a big deal. We just don't think idolatry is that severe of an issue. It is. It is. In the view of the Bible, worship and glory and honor belong to the true God and to him alone. And to rob him of what belongs to him and give it to another is an act of the highest cosmic treason that deserves judgment and wrath. That's the Bible's view. So our problem is we just don't share the view of the Bible that idolatry is that big a deal. Instead, we have a tendency to think that if you die an atheist, that's not a good thing. And to die an atheist is somehow worse than a Buddhist who is seeking enlightenment but not turning to the true God. Or someone who is strength, uh, seeking strength in life through a higher power who is not the true God. Or a Muslim worshiping Allah or a prophet crying out to Baal. That somehow an atheist is far worse than that. Not according to the Bible. Because according to the Bible, life and blessing is found in the true God and in him only. And for those who reject him, there is judgment and there is death. And let's be clear, the prophets of Baal are rejecting the true God. It's not just they did reject him, they're still rejecting him. Because we need to understand verse 39 to mean that while the people of Israel confessed Yahweh is the true God, the prophets of Baal are remaining stubborn and unrepentant, even with this incredible display of the reality and the truth of the true God. They remain stubborn and unrepentant. Throughout this chapter, when it refers to the people, it's referring to the Israelites, not the prophets of Baal. The prophets of Baal have not repented. And the unrepentant, will not be spared forever. The unrepentant will not be spared indefinitely. We can think of the judgment in verse 40 as a kind of preview or an intrusion of the final judgment that's to come. In a similar way, the Bible encourages us to think about the flood at the time of Noah that way. It encourages us to think of the judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah that way. They are anticipations of the final judgment to come. What does Jesus talk about when he says, it'll be like it was in the days of Noah when people were eating and drinking? The flood is a kind of judgment that anticipates final judgment. And so it is here in verse 40. The fate of the false prophets of Baal is a preview of the final judgment to come when the greater Elijah, Jesus, returns. And he will bring grace and salvation to those who confess his name in faith. And he brings judgment to those who don't and remain unrepentant. Consider how Ray Dillard connects this cult culminating slaughter on Mount Carmel with anticipating the end times judgment. Listen to these insightful words that he writes. He says, Mount Carmel overlooked the plain of Jezreel 
quite near the ancient city of Megiddo. The plain of Jezreel is perhaps the most contested piece of real estate in the history of the world. A major ancient highway linking three continents cut through a pass into the plain near Mount Carmel. Deborah, Joshua, David, Solomon, Josiah, the Philistines, pharaohs of Egypt, the kings of Assyria, Babylon, and Persia. I don't remember where my slide ends. Um, Alexander the Great, the Roman legions, the armies of Islam, the Crusaders, Napoleon, the Turks, the British, and the Israelis have all fought for or otherwise sought to control this strategic highway through the plain of Jezreel. It is no surprise then that John describes the great apocalyptic battle as set at Armageddon, a term meaning mountain of Megiddo. Elijah's confrontation with the prophets of Baal was a mini enactment in anticipation of that great battle when God will intervene in history to vindicate his name completely and to eradicate idolatry from the world. <laughs> That's what's happening here in the wider scope of what we're witnessing on Mount Carmel. It's anticipating final judgment. That's why the prophets of Baal are slaughtered. But when that final judgment comes, there's only going to be two kinds of people. There's going to be those who run to Jesus in joy, and there's going to be those who run from him in terror and dread. Which one are you? Which one are you? Not which one are you going to be. Which one are you now? Because the way you are now is the way you're going to be then. Are you running to Jesus in the joy of faith or running from him in the terror of unrepentance and enmity and opposition? Remember, this battle on Mount Carmel isn't just about the true God and false idols. It's about the reclaiming and the allegiance of hearts. And there's a battle going on for the allegiance of your heart. Has the true God won a victory over your heart so that you are confessing him as your God and following him as your God? Maybe this morning you need to repent of some sins that are dividing your heart. That yes, you're confessing his name, but you're still divided among idols. You need to hand those over to the Lord and give them to him to be victorious over. And you don't need to see fire from heaven in order to do that. Because God has given a greater demonstration of his power and his grace than what we see on Mount Carmel. He's given the definitive demonstration of his power and grace through the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus who has won a victory over sin and death. So yes, the culminating slaughter in verse 40 testifies to the reality that judgment is real and wrath is coming. But here's the good news. None of us need come under that judgment and that wrath. Confess faith in the true God, the Father, the crucified and risen Son, and the Holy Spirit. Surrender your heart and your life to him and you can know that your sins are forgiven through the atoning sacrifice that he has provided. You can know that his wrath is turned away from you by an act of grace through Christ Jesus. You can know that a sacrifice has been accepted in your place as a substitute to draw you near, to claim your heart that you might worship the true God and him only and find victory and find life both now and forevermore through him. Let's pray.